Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. And if you're all ready, the countdown to the start of the episode can now begin. Five, four, three, two, one, go. supposed to blow the bloody doors off come with me and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes in movies movies that had stories that the story just sucks a man this is just the beginning we would be honored if you would join us Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, there's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, title gives it away. We're here to talk of the stories of films and we tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories. All those ingredients, really, that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast, well, they lean more towards the mainstream than anything else. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. Try not to do snark. Try not to punch down. This podcast is a celebration of film and an appreciation of just how difficult it is to get one of them made. Without further ado, with a lot of preamble there, uh, I'm going to move on to the first of the two films I'm going to talk about in this episode of Film Stories. Tell you what, play you a clip. I come to the story, the other side of this. We are about to do a job in uh, Italy. It's a very difficult job, and the only way to get through it is we all work together as a team. And that means you do everything I say. now what would you like <laughs> Ah, that's a proper chuckle, isn't it? We're in 1969 then for The Italian Job, directed by Peter Collinson, written by Troy Kennedy Martin, produced by Michael Dealey, his name is important to this, and starring Michael Caine, Noel Coward, Benny Hill, Raffalone, Tony Beckley, Rosano Brazzi and Maggie Bly. So the story of the Italian job then goes back to Paramount Pictures, actually, that Paramount was operating in the UK. And what it had worked out, according to producer Michael Dealey, was that if it made a lot of films in Britain, it needed just a few of them to be successful to make a lot of money just because of the economics of filmmaking at that point. And so Dealey was given three million dollars, told to go and shoot his film. And he says, I think we went about two hundred thousand dollars over budget in the end. But that didn't really matter in the end because the film was a hit. So I've sort of told you the end of this story uh, already. But let's go right back to the start and let's go to screenwriter Troy Kennedy Martin. 
who had been enjoying uh, a reasonable amount of success. He'd gone to write Kelly's Hero straight off the back of The Italian Job as well, that film star Clint Eastwood. But in this particular one, he'd come to he'd come up with the idea for this caper that Dealey wanted, that Paramount wanted. I should note that I'm quoting Dealey's book quite a lot in this, uh, in this particular segment of the show. That book is Blade Runners, Deer Hunters and Blowing the Bloody Doors Off, My Life in Cult Movies. It is a terrific book. And as um, as Troy Kennedy Martin explained, it just I immediately thought that the cars in this should be minis because minis were classless, very fast and sort of cheeky. They represented the new Britain, which was kind of laddish, cheerful, self-confident and didn't take itself too seriously. And that was the tone he was driving for, for the caper that he, he decided to put together. And so this was a film that was set primarily, or at least the crime bit of it, in Italy, with segments of it in the UK as well. And so it was time really fairly quickly to put the ingredients of it together. For a director for the film, Dealey turned to someone he'd just been working with as well, uh, a man called Peter Collinson. Now, Collinson had been working in television, uh, but had made his feature debut on the 1967 film The Penthouse, which was a hit in the US, at least. Uh, it didn't cost a lot of money, made some money. And so he then made Up the Junction, starring uh, Dennis Waterman in that one alongside Susie Kendall. But then he came into he came into the world of Michael Dealey when he was hired to direct The Long Day's Dying, which was a Paramount production that Dealey produced as well. And it was off the back of that that he jumped aboard the film that was now called The Italian Job. And so they knew fairly instantly as well that stunts were going to be pivotal to the story that they wanted to tell. And Michael Dealey, as producer, well, he knew it was an area that he couldn't afford to skimp on here. And so he looked around as part and parcel of putting the film together for the best stunt driver he could find. And he settled on a man called Remy Julien, who proved, as Dealey would acknowledge, absolutely ideal. And Julien would come in, even at the scripting part of it, and chat to director Peter, uh, Peter Collinson and would talked to Dealey as well and he would just suggest ways to escalate the stunts that had been put in the screenplay because the screenplay had things in it that even Troy Kennedy Martin didn't actually think that would happen because he wrote a, a massive traffic jam sequence just thinking well that's going to be faked there's going to be rear projection involved it'd be mainly shot on a sound stage um, also the stunts that he put in I mean they were pushing things a little bit but when Julien came in and looked at it and just said actually we can do this and this and this and this um, as Dealey described it the stunts were now going to become even more quote hair raising than had originally been planned and the script was uh, was evolved to accommodate what Remy Julian wanted to put on screen so the, in the back of Dealey's mind was the idea of actually we don't have to fake this we could do all this together and so they'd settled on the minis and as Dealey told Top Gear it was the car every young person wanted to have at that point he said we were making a picture which we hoped would be attractive to young people so it was really an obvious choice you couldn't use an Austin A30 or an A40 for a movie like this it was just the right car and it was all part of just pitching the tone of the film that they were looking to they were looking to get absolutely absolutely right and so they'd worked out that it was going to involve a lot of chases a lot of stunts it was going to involve minis and so they got in touch with the manufacturers of the minis at the time British Leyland um, and explained the film that they're making 
Here's an opportunity to put them on screen in a paramount motion picture and expecting British Leyland might actually be quite open to the idea of this. Um, what they were met with was pretty much the contrary. They just weren't helpful at all. And in fact, it was the boss of Fiat in Italy, uh, Gianni Agnelli, who was far more helpful, even though his cars weren't prominent in the film. And the Fiat boss allowed them use of locations, allowed them use of vehicles. Um, but British Leyland, none of that. And in the end, all they could get off the off the manufacturers of the minis were six of the cars that they had to pay trade price to get. Now, if you've watched the Italian job, 1969 vintage, you'll know that lots of film, lots of cars even get trashed during the uh, during the story of the film. And what happened was, well, they weren't getting them off the manufacturer. They just bought secondhand cars as and when they needed them for the sequences where cars deliberately get destroyed. Uh, Michael Caine was coming aboard to star in the film and he writes about the he, he's written about the Italian job in his memoirs uh, for instance in What's It All About he talks about the problem with getting minis and he describes how despite the fact that our minis were in direct competition with his Fiat's Gianni Agnelli let us film a chase on the test track on the top of his Fiat factory in Turin and Caine described him as a guy with a lot of class as opposed to the bosses of our British motor company. Now, the plan was to uh, to film in Italy. I mean, the film was called The Italian Job. It involved a heist in Italy. But they uh, Dealey had a thought about this because they could go to the they could go to places like Rome or they could go to Milan where movies had been shot before. And they'd be pretty well versed in what to expect. And what Dealey reckoned is if you'd had major films taking place in your city before, you're going to be a bit more restrictive because you know what could go wrong. Now, he had been decided he had been pushing the idea of this massive traffic jam we could film this for real if we get this right we can clog up a city we can put our cameras in place and we can um, we can capture it uh, as best we can cinematographer on this the legendary douglas slocum incidentally and so what he decided was to head to turin because as he reasoned nobody had shot a film in turin there before and he said we needed to cause a great deal of trouble to traffic and the city and such like and so one of the rules of film is to always try and shoot in what he described as a virgin city when you're going to make a lot of trouble and Turin accepted the Italian job production with open arms, perhaps a little bit not quite knowing what it was getting into. The cast was coming together as well in the midst of all of this. That, as well as Michael Caine taking the lead of the ensemble, there were people coming aboard like Benny Hill, who kept himself pretty much to himself during the production, but also a bit of a coup in landing Noel Coward, who would take on the key role of Mr Bridger in the film. Now, Coward wasn't in the best of health at the point. This, In fact, it, it turned out to be his final movie. He did negotiate a decent deal. Well, his agent certainly deserved a handshake, uh, got the sum of £25,000 for his work, on the film which was all shot within 10 days it was also agreed that Coward's material would be filmed in Dublin rather than the UK because the tax rates in Dublin were far more favourable than they were in Britain at that point and it's worth noting as the whole thing headed towards production in the summer of 1968 that Michael Caine wasn't really a driver in fact at this point in his life he couldn't drive a car and so the film was having to be designed around things like that now when they came to remake the Italian job as we'll discover later in this episode uh, driving was fairly pivotal to, to to the casting of the film was certainly the demands that were put on the cast slightly different here they were quite clever in the way they worked around it and also they were employing quality stunt drivers too as they did in the later film but in june of 1969 
1968, the Italian job was ready to shoot. Now, that $3 million budget was already starting to be pressed with the purchase of the minis that they had to pay proper whack for and all the extra bits and bobs they needed as well. And so they were already at the point where they were having to find savings to get the film made. And so one of the ways they did so was with a bus that is pivotal to the ending of the Italian job. Now, I'm not going to specifically tell you what that ending was. This is a spoiler free podcast, but I think I can safely say that the bus is absolutely crucial to the ongoing legend of the film. And they also knew they were going to have to drive it speed around hills that it was going to be. Eventually, they decided it was going to be a key part of that finale, but they couldn't stretch the budget anymore to having a backup for it. So originally, as put together, the Italian job production was going to get two of these buses. In fact, what they did when they were moving equipment from uh, the UK to Italy for the location shooting that took place in around uh, in, in around Turin is they packed up all the equipment, the lighting equipment, the filming equipment in the bus and drove it on that. But that bus was also the only one they had. They had to sacrifice the spare. And when you watch the Italian job and realise just what it's used for, it, it's almost staggering, really, that they didn't have a backup if anything had gone wrong with it. Now, thankfully, nothing did. It was to a film where second unit photography would prove important that the schedule for the film was demanding. They needed to get quite a lot of bang for their proverbial buck here. But Michael Dealey was a cautious producer on this because he knew that deploying a second unit, certainly at this point in, in the story of film, could put the backs of some directors up. Uh, now, Peter Collinson was to be knee deep in a lot of the dialogue scenes. There's quite a lot of scene setting that takes place. But Collinson also wanted to film the action side himself. Dealey, however, knew that that wasn't going to be entirely possible. There's no way that on the schedule they were at that Collinson could stretch himself to film absolutely everything. However, he decided to time his argument rather than having the bust up ahead of time. They started filming and after a few weeks of shooting, as Dealey expected, let's just say generously, the schedule was already being stretched and so it was at that point that Dealey approached his director and Collinson admitted then that a second unit, yep, would probably be a good idea. So Dealey from Italy got on the phone to Philip Ressler in the UK and 24 hours after he put in that phone call, Ressler was no longer in the UK. He was in Turin and he was working on the black and white exposition scenes that set up the caper at the heart of the film. Now, it's not just the bus that's part of the legend of the Italian job. There's also an iconic mini chase that takes place around the city of Turin. This took the best part of six weeks alone to shoot. And then there's the traffic jam that's at the heart of the caper. And so they were quite clever about how they did this because they knew that they were going to do the traffic jam for real. But Phil, what Phil Ressler did was he decided to put cameras where people couldn't see them from the ground level so that perhaps the police and the residents residents of Turin wouldn't quite appreciate what was going on and so the cameras were put on the taller buildings around the city and a real traffic jam was engineered which is what you see in the film that was happening uh, that was affecting the residents of Turin and it was also perfect for the movie far more effective than any rear projection work that they could have possibly done keeping the spirit of doing things for real as well. A further sequence in the film sees minis escaping and then uh, finding their way into another vehicle as part of the big escape plan. Now, this is a really tricky 
tricky thing to shoot as well. And here's where the filmmakers got a little bit lucky as well, because, I mean, Turin had thrown open their arms to the filmmakers. The Fiat team had thrown open their arms to the filmmakers as well. But what they also got access to was a stretch of unopened Italian motorway where they got the space to film the sequence of minis uh, moving into another vehicle. Not everything could be achieved in Italy, though, not all of the chase stuff. So there is some underground, uh, some underground sewer pipe material where the glamour of Italy was swapped for the glamour of Coventry in the West Midlands, where they came back to the UK just to shoot those bits. It was a, a very tricky film to shoot. And also there was a lot on a lot of pressure on the shoulders of the stunt performers. In in fact, one of the stunt performers, David Wynne Jones, was involved in a serious smash during the making of the Italian job that would lead. I mean, he wasn't expected to pull through. It would leave him in the end in hospital for a year before he made some degree of recovery. For Noel Coward, I mean, he was, I, I mean, Michael Caine just discussed the joy of working with him. And again, Coward's health was not good. But as Caine writes in a further one of his memoirs, Blowing the Bloody Doors Off and Other Lessons in Life, uh, Coward did a hilarious turn as a gangster boss in the Italian job. And he was a gloriously unstuffy, unfussy master of comic timing who very sweetly used to take me for dinner at the Savoy Grill every Wednesday evening when we were shooting. And the shooting did go on for some time as well. But progress was being made. Yet all the while, while the film was coming together, the ending of the Italian job was causing headaches. And the ending that they went into the start of the production with was not the one that was ultimately used. Because Dealey, uh, for one, was reportedly unhappy with some of the potential endings that had been mooted to the movie. In particular, endings that had been put forward that required a lot of dialogue to explain what was going on. And as he reasoned, just like if you having to explain it it's not quite working and so he was due to head over to Paramount in the US and Paramount was pushing for an ending that might set up a potential sequel to the film should it prove successful now the original script that was put together by Kennedy Martin would have seen the gang all meet their maker let's just put it that way but as Dealey said throughout shooting I mean they've been working on other endings and it was it was on a flight to see studio boss Robert Evans, a legend of Hollywood in his own right. His, his memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture, is very much worth a read. He was off to see Evans at Paramount in the US to get the to get various elements of the film signed off. And that's when the ending came to Dealey on the plane that he thought this it was his eureka moment he felt this was the way forward they should go this was the one they should go with again i don't want to spoil it for you if you've not seen it um but one of the i think i can fairly say one of the most iconic endings of 60s and 70s cinema came to him on that flight he then went over to evans's office at paramount and evans was open to the idea i mean he could be a tough cookie robert evans but yeah OK, that was signed off. So then what Dealey had to do by this stage, Peter Collinson was in Ireland shooting the sequences with Noel Coward. So he flew over to Ireland where the filming had moved on to and he told Collinson about the new ending. And Collinson reportedly was not impressed at all. As Dealey recalls in his memoir, he just simply said he wasn't shooting it. And so Dealey just didn't want the fight, just said, right, if you're not going to shoot it, I'll get the second unit to do it. And so Collinson kept filming in Ireland and it went over to Phil Ressler to take a coach up to the mountains and and shoot the ending that we finally got to see in the film. 
The last stages of shooting would take place uh, around London at a pair of studios, Twickenham and Isleworth Studios. These were fairly small facilities that there wasn't an awful lot of demand on. Um, and also they were close to Sydenham Common where a moment, let's just say, involving doors being blown off a car was captured. In the end, filming could wrap up and, as Dealey would note, not one of the minis were, that was used in the movie was still roadworthy by the time it headed into post-production. That if you see one on an auction site that says it was used in the film, let's just say you should approach it with a reasonable degree of caution. Into post-production, it was Collinson who suggested Quincy Jones put together the music for the film. Jones, at this point in his life, was having struggles, uh, financial struggles, and was open to the idea that the production could afford him, and he put together an incredible collection of music for the Italian job that Michael Dealey's very open about, about really just the impact of Jones's contribution and what it did for the film. Post-production also saw one expensive stunt get the chop, as well that there's a moment that was filmed where the bunch of minis jump between the roofs of a pair of fiat factories in Turin and this was a stunt as you would expect as most of the stunts in the film that took a lot of testing before they would even begin to attempt it and in the end they shot it three minis in the end jumped 24 meters at just under 70 miles per hour and the footage was captured so what was the problem well in Dealey's eyes, the footage just wasn't shot very well when they reviewed the uh, material. It just didn't look right. It didn't feel right. It was almost like the cameras were in the wrong position. And Dealey reconciled in the end, well, it just hadn't worked. There wasn't space in the budget to give it another go. They'd gone over the $3 million that Paramount had assigned to the film by $100,000, $200,000. Um, and so the Italian job had to do without what could have been another iconic sequence in a film that was, let's face it, hardly shy of them. It was thus, in the end, a 99-minute cut of the film that was released in UK cinemas on the 5th of June, 1969. The uh, the initial reception to the film was strong as well. A lot of fun, uh, praise for the stunts, play, uh, praise for the car chases as well, praise for the cast too, and also for Peter Collinson, a man who would who would lose before he really began. Uh, we really began to see just what cultural impact the Italian job would have, and it was a hit film as well that it was uh, it was a movie that made and it made the top 20 of the UK box office uh, on its release in 1969 it was a hit in the UK what it wasn't though much to the disappointment of Paramount was a hit in the US and so Paramount had that plan for a sequel that would have picked up immediately after the first film but because the film failed to ignite the box office in America and its takings there were really really very light well those sequels Equal plans soon just came to note. Now, as Michael Caine would explain, I mean, he had a theory as to why it didn't go down well in America, and he wrote in What's It All About? When I arrived in Los Angeles to promote the picture, I was stunned to open a newspaper and see an image of a naked woman sitting on the lap of a gangster who was holding a machine gun. And as Kane wrote, the genius who thought that uh, that up was sending such a wrong signal about this U certificate caper that I knew immediately that the Italian job was doomed. So I got on the next plane and came home to England. And again, as he writes, after months of hard work, sweat and tears, it can sometimes only take one small mistake like that to screw the whole thing up. Now, the Italian job's box office um, ultimately, I mean, it was in the hundreds of thousands of pounds. It wasn't it wasn't making Paramount its money back. And so the, the, those sequel plans just kind of dissipated. 
But then the legend of the Italian job began to grow because even though it might not have made a fortune in 1969, well, it just it, it built its audience on television viewings, for instance. When video came about, it became really successful. Various lines from the film, not least the one about doors and blowing them off, have made them made it firmly into the cultural lexicon as well. Um, a video game version of the Italian job came about in 2001. There was talk of remakes, which I'm coming to shortly. And over time, it didn't take too long, actually. The film was soon being regarded as something of a classic. However, what I really love about Michael Dealey's book is it really throws open the joys of Hollywood economics because he prints on page 75 of the hardback of his book, and I'm looking at it right now, uh, a, a cumulative distribution statement that Paramount Pictures gave to him, and this is dated on the 25th of September 1999, and it describes how the Italian job was $8.873 million in debt some what 30 years after the release of the original film that a movie that had cost a little over three million dollars to make was nine million dollars in debt and as Dealey writes in his book that uh, it seems to me a masterpiece of creativity he not unreasonably says to conclude that the film's recent reported deficit is nearly three times uh, the original budget and he describes how the film in recent years has been reissued theatrically, been a tremendous success with hundreds of thousands of DVDs sold and in 2003 was remade at a cost exceeding $50 million. Whenever, he asked, did Hollywood remake an unprofitable picture? However, he also notes that today the influence that the Italian job's winning cocktail of larger-than-life characters and street-smart London dialogue has, has had on films like Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, for instance, is obvious. It would also, of course, over time add rocket fuel to the hardly shabby career of Michael Caine as well. And it's not bad, really, for a film that Paramount Pictures Accounts Department has uh, has basically filed as such a financial disappointment. The kind of disappointment that people consider television spin-offs of, the kind of disappointment that turns up as part of the 2012 Olympic Games in London, the kind of disappointment where, even to this day, further spin-offs are being considered, and to the point of this episode, the kind of disappointment where in 2003, Paramount Pictures so sore at the amount of money the first film lost, decided to make another one. Coming to that. In Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A second though. 
And that brings us to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Story. So I'm going to do my parish notices, just give you a little bit of taste of what we're up to. First of all, a request, if you don't mind. Uh, Independent podcasts like this, the very fact that this exists and we're into over 300 episodes is down to the support of people who've had our back, really, who've had my back, and I'm hugely appreciative for it. If you like this podcast, it helps enormously if you could subscribe to it at your podcast home of choice. It doesn't cost you a penny to do that. Uh, If you can leave, ideally, a hugely positive review as well um, if you want to put some money in the pot and help supporters then if you go to patreon.com slash simon brew uh, our patreon backers thank you so much to everyone who backs this podcast get the podcast early they get uh, an ad free version of it you've also been finding out a lot of gossip of what we're coming uh, of what's coming up and what's happening in the world of film stories already on that uh, on the patreon feed is an upcoming very special episode we've recorded with nick park that's been released in april 2023 god i love doing that episode um also i'm taking my live film stories live show movie geek live uh, around the uk over the next few weeks so i'm recording this at the end of march 2023 i'm in birmingham at the midlands arts center on wednesday the 29th of march 2023 i'm in london at king's place on thursday the 20th of april and then i'm going to stockport to the light on the 3rd of may i'm announcing new dates shortly i hope but if you fancy coming along and listening to me while on in person if you head to filmstories.co.uk click on the live events tab at the at the top you'll find out where i'm going to be and how to get tickets for those we've got some terrific guests coming along to those shows as well I think that's the end of the parish notices, though, for this episode. Let's move on to the second of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories, which actually has the same name as the first film I've talked about in this episode of Film Stories. Let me play you a clip. I'll come to the story the other side of this. They're not in it for the pay. Hey, Steve. Gang's all here. You have no idea how hard it is for me not to reach across this table and kill you. You want to start the game up again? That's fine with me. They're in it for the payback. You'll try to take out my guards. I have five of them that you don't know about. I don't do dogs. I had a real bad experience. What happened? I had a bad experience. You tried to hack the system. You ready to create the biggest traffic jam in the history of Los Angeles? I'm so ready. Oops. You're going to try to crack my safe? He took my father from me. I'm taking this. You just blew the best thing you had going for you. You just blew the element of surprise. Why do you get to punch him and I don't? It's a very good question, isn't it? That is a clip from the 2003 remake of The Italian Job, this time directed by F. Gary Gray, screenplay by Donna and Wayne Powers, and starring Mark Wahlberg, Charlize Theron, Edward Norton, coming to him, Seth Green, Jason Statham and Moss Def. So Paramount Pictures might not, as we made the point, have made any profit from the Italian job and may have made all those significant losses, but it was still willing to gamble on another film. And this project bubbled up while Sherry Lansing was the head of Paramount Pictures and with producer Donald DeLine on board, uh, work would get underway on trying to put a screenplay together to see if they could get another film going. So first up to have a go were Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. Now their names have come up several times on Film Stories podcast, primarily because they 
they've written so many or co-written so many James Bond films and made a major contribution to the James Bond saga from the Pierce Brosnan era onwards. But at this stage, they just had, as they explained to Screen Daily, two films produced in 15 years at that point in their career. One was Let Him Have It, starring Christopher Eccleston. The other was Plunkett and McLean, starring Robert, Robert Carlyle. But they've been trying and trying and trying to get films moving. Yet they were hired by Paramount to put together a draft for the Italian job. And what they did is they stayed very close to Troy Kennedy Martin's story for the 1969 movie. Now, the problem there was that Paramount didn't want that. Paramount wanted something a little bit different for a modern Italian job. And so, whilst Purvis and Wade had gone close to the original film, the ultimate movie would oh, steer away from it. It did mean that new writers were going to need to come in. And that's where Donna Powers and Wayne Powers were next to be hired. Now, what they did, I mean, they hadn't watched the original film when they got the gig, but they watched it. They watched it once. And that was that. And they decided to relocate the bits that they liked to Los Angeles. They kept the minis, they kept the high sequences and they would set a bit of it in Italy as well. But Los Angeles was going to be the, the primary shooting location of the new film. And so this time what they did, as the, as the Distracted Globe website reported, was they put together draft after draft after draft as they put their own spin on this. And in the end, they nailed it, that it took 18 drafts over two years to get there. But finally, Paramount had a script that it was happy with. And so it was off to find a director. Now, this is where F. Gary Gray comes into the story. He's a, a really adept director who's gone across several genres over the last 20 or so years. At this stage, he had a couple of notable films to his name. One was Set It Off, a heist movie that had earned him attention, and rightly so. And the other was The Negotiator, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Kevin Spacey, notable for having an incredibly spoiler-filled tra spoiler trailer, that one. But F. Gary Gray was sent the script to the Italian job by Paramount just as he was coming off making a film called A Man Apart starring Vin Diesel. Now the release of A Man Apart would be delayed for a good year after it was completed and in fact what greased the wheels to an eventual cinema release for A Man Apart was the success that its star Vin Diesel was enjoying elsewhere with The Fast and the Furious, you might have heard of it, and also the first Triple X film came out in 2002 and so it was kind of released almost to capitalise on, on that in the end but by which stage F. Gary Gray had received the script for the Italian job and as he told Black Film he said the biggest draw for me was when I read the script the ability to pull together a cast like this because one of the things that F. Gary Gray saw was this was going to be a big ensemble caper movie and a huge amount of fun as well and so he signed on the dotted line and it was time to turn quickly to the first major piece of casting for him which was when Mark Wahlberg came along now Wahlberg had come to F. Gary Gray's attention in particular off the back of the film Boogie Nights, which I've covered before and I, I love enormously. He'd, he'd been enjoying some hits as well at this stage that he'd proven that he got some box office uh, cachet with movies like Three Kings and The Perfect Storm that he co-starred with George Clooney uh, with. He also appeared in the Planet of the Apes remake, which was critically battered, but also it made a fair amount of money. And with Wahlberg in the lead role, there was feeling from Paramount that it might just have enough of a star to make this a viable project, that we're heading um, at speed at this point towards an actual green light for the film. 
The budget that Paramount was attributing to the new Italian job was in the $60 million range, so a little bit mid to high range at this point. And Wahlberg agreed to sign up, and so it was time to find the rest of the cast. Now, a lot of the story of this new Italian job centres around the casting of Edward Norton in it, because it's no secret whatsoever that the, the last film, really, that Norton wanted to be in was the Italian job. But the reason he ended up with it goes back to his first his first movie with Paramount, Primal Fear. Now, it's a fairly regular thing that um, when you're when you're giving a new actor a break, as Norton was given in Primal Fear, that you sign up an option for them to appear in another movie or two. And Paramount duly did that, that it, uh, as part of the contract that he signed, as I understand it, for appearing in Primal Fear, he agreed to do a couple more movies for Paramount. But what neither party really expected was just quite what a breakout role it would be for him in that film. The Richard Gere headlined thriller, it didn't have massive expectations on it. But Norton's performance would be hugely acclaimed and would earn him an Oscar nomination. It would be a massive breakthrough for him. And Paramount then was on the lookout for what the next picture it was going to make with Edward Norton would be. What then came about was Norton took on a couple of other roles, but he was offered the film Fight Club for David Fincher opposite Brad Pitt. And Fight Club was being made at 20th Century Fox. Now, Fox knew, because Paramount mentioned this, that he was under contract to Paramount to do another movie. And so a deal was being brokered that would extend the option that Paramount had on Norton, that it would mean it, he wouldn't have to make two pictures. He could just make one. But also the time that the amount of time that deal would cover would be extended. So it's Observer that reported this and it described how sources close to Mr Norton said that co-starring in Fight Club was so important to him he decided to make peace with Paramount rather than fight the studio. And it described how Mr Norton and his then agent Ed Lamato agreed to a settlement which would extend the terms of Mr Norton's contract with Paramount. See, I told you. Then what happened, it panned out that once Fight Club had wrapped shooting, Norton and Paramount had between them 18 months to find a project that they both liked. And as again, as I understand it, if they couldn't do, Paramount then had two, 24 months or two years to you and me to assign Norton to a project of their choice. Now, there's some that there are two sides to this story, but the most reported suggests that Paramount kept offering Norton projects, which he turned down. Norton's side of the argument was he was coming up with ideas and projects um, that Paramount didn't agree to. Norton also signed up to a film that was distributed by Paramount called The Score, opposite Marlon Brando. Now, the problem there was Norton's lawyers argued that that was part of the deal. This was distributed by Paramount. Paramount argued it only had a distribution deal on the score. Are you still following this? Uh, Paramount only had a distribution deal. It wasn't a film it had made itself. And so the contract and the deal with Norton was still active. And so as the I mean, in Stephen Galloway's book, Leading Lady, Sherry Lansing and the Making of a Hollywood Groundbreaker, it describes how Norton was wavering. And puts across an account that says for the following five years, Norton turned down everything Paramount showed him. When he finally said no to the Italian job, which Lansing had put in his direction, it was one time too many, as Stephen Galloway writes. So at this stage, Lansing called up Mark Wahlberg, who was already starring in the film, and asked him to get involved. 
And Wahlberg at this point described it was said to be an extremely important film to him, given that he was coming off the back of two flops that he'd done a film, for instance, called The Truth About Charlie, which hadn't done great guns at the box office. Um, He'd also just come off the back of making movies such as Rockstar and he'd done uh, The Yards with Charlie Theron, as it happened as well. So he'd had a couple of hits, but he had a couple of disappointments there as well. And so Wahlberg just said, do, do, did he have a deal? And Lansing said, well, yeah, he did. No one held a gun to his head, explained Lansing. Um, then he should do it, said Wahlberg. Now, Wahlberg was said to be unsure about bringing Edward Norton into the film because why would you want someone to do a film that they were being forced into doing? In fact, the Observer report suggested that they were absolutely uh, uh, cited an anonymous producer unrelated to the film, saying they're absolutely mad to coerce a star like Norton into doing a film where he clearly didn't want to be there. However, Lansing was now playing hardball. And so with Norton trying to turn the Italian job down, what she did was she got a lawsuit together and Norton was threatened with a $20 million lawsuit if he didn't do the film. And in the end, he just buckled. He agreed to do it, even though he absolutely didn't want to get involved in the movie. The rest of the casting was a little bit more straightforward. I mean, Seth Seth Green was a, a good left field choice for it as well. I mean, his profile had been, had shot up off the back of the Austin Powers films. And he explained to the BBC, he just said, I got really excited about it because the script was so good. It was sharp and fun and had great style, although he would improvise quite a lot and go off piste of the script. And he explained the movie's different from the original. He's got that same jubilance to it where you get really excited about siding with the criminals, but it was a different film. And this was key to the the creatives because the reputation of the 1969 Italian job in the UK in particular was sky high at this point. Why would you want to run roughshod over that? You may as well take the key ingredients and just do something different with them. For Charlize Theron, at this stage in her career, she'd worked with Wahlberg on the yard. She already knew him and she told the BBC that when the script had come along, it was sent to her and she knew that Wahlberg was already in the cast. Then she explained how Wahlberg gave her a call and said, you have to come and do this. It's not a serious movie. We can have some laughs, have a good time. And she said, I just like being around him. Plus, he's a phenomenal actor. And she was offered the character of Stella, a character that wasn't in the original film as well. So instantly there was something different she could offer. For F. Gary Gray, it was the film Sweet November that had really brought Charlize Theron to his attention. But for Charlize Theron, she quickly realised too that she was going to be treated differently, uh, certainly at first, to her male co-stars in the film. And she explained this in an interview with The Independent that were, came out in about 2020. And she said that there was an unfair process. She described it how I was the only woman with a bunch of guys. And I remember vividly getting the schedule in our pre-production and they scheduled me for six weeks more car training than any of the guys. And she just said it's so insulting. But it was also a thing that put a real fire under my ass. She said, all right, you guys want to play this game. Let's go. And I made it a point to outdrive all of those guys, which she duly did as reports go. The casting was uh, was duly completed. I mean, Jason Statham came aboard as well. And it was a strong ensemble that had come in. Mostef in there. And so they had to go through the training. This wasn't a case that the actors didn't drive, that 
what if Gary Gray wanted to do was put his actors behind the wheel as much as possible, wanted to see as much in camera as possible as he could. In 2003, at the point this was being released, there was another option there as well, that they could have relied a little bit more on CG, but he didn't want to do that. He only wanted to do it, use it sparingly where required. And so Damon Hill, Formula One world champion, was hired to put the cast through their paces in the cars. And it was Tehran who was said to have outperformed them all. Now, while the cast were off doing their training, F. Gary Gray and his director of photography, Wally Pfister, who would go on to be DP on an awful lot of Christopher Nolan movies before moving into directing himself, well, they were busy studying car magazines and chase sequences in classic films like The French Connection. They were looking at vintage photos. They were looking at different ways that they could give their chases some distinction. And then the, it got to the point where Gray brought his cast together for a rehearsal and he decided to do something completely left field with them. That they'd had 12 weeks of preparation on this and this was right towards the end of this that, as he explained to Black Film, the first thing I did was, in rehearsal, I told the cast to drop their scripts and told them, we're going to go and pull off a heist. And he explained, not unreasonably, they couldn't believe it. I said, I told them if they were to play thieves, they'd have to perfect it. We would do this on the first day of rehearsals. And he said, I think we were all they were all game for it and really excited. And they did actually do an actual heist. As F. Gary Gray said, they pulled this plan and I can't get into details, but they ended up breaking and entering somewhere and stealing a couple of things and escaping without being caught. And then it was the job of one of the assistants on the production to take all the stuff they nicked back to the place where they nicked it from. No charges were brought or anything like that. But as a bonding thing for the cast and for something to get them into the spirit of the film, well, Gray was pretty happy with his work there. It was September 2002 when cameras finally rolled on the new Italian job and there'd been some backlash to the announcement that it was happening as well. It didn't help that there'd been a remake of another much-loved Michael Caine headline movie, Get Carter, starring Sylvester Stallone, that was so badly received it didn't even get a cinema release in the UK. It went straight to DVD over here. The majority of this Italian job was going to be location work again, but they did have to build a subway tunnel set, uh, once again, that wouldn't fit on a traditional soundstage. And the minis were once again a bit of a challenge. Now, they didn't have trouble getting supply of them. I mean, the manufacturers of the minis had seen just the impact of the, the, the cultural impact of the cars in the original film. But this time they were doing some shooting on the electric subway system in Los Angeles. And what that meant was they couldn't use petrol driven and minis for those sequences and so they had to build a pair of electric driven cars this was at the start of the 2000s as well just for those moments in the film they wanted to get the traffic disruption as well and so they were able here to shut down Hollywood Boulevard for a week for the first time this hadn't happened before to accommodate a, a film of this ilk to shoot those chases but also their hands were a little more tied with car chases they couldn't sneak into a city that wouldn't know what was going to happen when they turned up and when they did do location uh, when they did do location work as well that they knew they would be under the watchful eye of assorted authorities so they shot in Venice for instance and the authorities kept a very close eye on the Italian job production um, even when they managed to escape the watchful eye on location, for instance, at one stage they went up into the Italian Alps and there they found it was the temperature that was playing havoc with the guns that they were used in the sequences they were shooting there. 
Of the Hollywood Boulevard sequence, though, there was a little bit of a pinch me moment for F. Gary Gray at that point. And he would recall how there were a thousand extras and hundreds of cars and three helicopters and being able to shut down and control all the shops, a hundred shops in that one city block alone. He describes it as a logistical challenge. And he says as a director, moments like that, it makes you really nervous. Uh, Also on set, of course, by this point was Edward Norton. And he had arrived on set and and producer DeLine had gone on about how Norton was approaching the work professionally, that he didn't particularly want to do it. But nonetheless, he was doing what he had to do. However, as Donald DeLine would also tell Stephen Galloway's aforementioned book, it was surreal because Norton had hired an assistant to videotape his every move on set. And DeLine asked him what's going on. And Norton said, I'm going to protect myself and have it documented that I'm doing what I'm told. And DeLine said he was clearly shaken up, but Sherry Lansing was like steel. She wouldn't back down. Norton thus delivered his work, as did uh, F. Gary Gray, that the production of this went on for several months and there were physical chases filmed as well. I mean, they really wanted to try and match the intensity and the tone that had been set by the first film. And as F. Gary Gray would tell MTV as production wrapped up, we shot around the world. He said we opened the picture in Venice, Italy, where we shot this great boat chase scene. We go into the Italian Alps where it's freezing to death, but it was fun. He said we made it out there. We shot some action in the Alps in the Dolomites extra huge glacier. We brought it to Los Angeles. It was just a fun picture to make. It had brought together a a hell of an ensemble cast, brought together by Sheila Jaffe, I should note, who had cast The Sopranos and was full of suggestions for the ensemble here. And by early 2003, the new Italian job could head into post-production. The story of Edward Norton's reluctance to to, to get involved was the key talking point, actually, heading into the release of the film. And Norton would say, I mean, he would admit it wasn't a film I had much interest in. He said, I was going to do a play for my theatre company at the same time. I'd asked Sherry Lansing to not force me to do the film, but she insisted. I tried to be poli- I tried to be politely firm that I really couldn't bail out on the commitment to the play, which had a lot of our company's economics on the line. But as I understand it separately to that as well, Lansing on the Quiet did give money to his theatre company, although that wasn't as heavily reported. The new Italian job was, well, Paramount had had reasonable hopes for it and it headed into cinemas in the US on May the 30th, 2003, after debuting at the Tribeca Film Festival earlier that month. The response to it as well was surprisingly good. And I say that because there was that just that fear that a classic was being remade. However, there was a feeling that it had captured a, a lot of what worked about the original, that the the chases were, were good. Again, the cast was good. It wasn't quite at the level of the first film, but in its own right, that lots of people were on the side of the new Italian job. The question was, this time, could it capture an American audience? And the answer this time was, well, wouldn't you know it? Yes, it would. That it opened the weekend of May the 30th of June the 1st, and it opened in third place. I mean, the early signs weren't massively promising. A $19.4 million opening weekend. Put it behind Bruce Almighty that had opened the week before, and Pixar's Finding Nemo, the big opener that weekend, which took $70 million. Also around Wrong Turn, the first Wrong 
long-term film open that week in sixth place with five million. The Matrix Reloaded was on week three. Daddy Daycare, good God, my kids like that film, however much I try and dissuade them. That was in the top five as well. But the Italian job had opened well. The response to it had been good. And even though Too Fast, Too Furious opened the week after, well, the Italian job held more of its audience than had been expecting. So Too Fast, Too Furious soared in with $50 million. But the drop-off for the Italian job was just 32%. That was thought to be pretty much good numbers, really. Another $30 million in the second weekend. And the film was clearly going to hang around, even while other films were kind of struggling a little bit. Hollywood Homicide opened the week after with Harrison Ford and Josh Hartnett. Not a happy production, that one, apparently. Uh, Rugrats Go Wild came about. Dumb and Dumber when Harry met Lloyd. All of those were opening with like about $11 million. And the Italian job on its third... Uh, what, on its fourth weekend had bounced back up to the top five even as Angley's Hulk opened with 62 million and so the competition was was there it wasn't massively fierce there are a lot of films that didn't quite perform as expected that year and in the end what Paramount did was it held the Italian job in cinemas for as long as it could possibly get away with just so it could cross a hundred million dollars at the US box office which it eventually did it kind of crawled there in the end uh, but landed on 106 million it's its take outside of the US came in at 69 million worldwide gross 176 million and this was in the midst of the highs of the DVD era as well it proved to be a really profitable film for the studio so much so that plans were quickly afoot for a sequel to this Italian job that was going by the name of the Brazilian job now this would have brought back pretty much everyone but wouldn't you know it Edward Norton and the plan was to shoot that in the spring of 2005 try and get it out in cinemas towards the end of 2005 but they never really got the script together on it and so even though word of it would continue what kiboshed it initially was a change at the top of Paramount Pictures and at that stage it ceased to become a priority for the new studio hierarchy it, it what it didn't do was erase talk of the film though that the questions were still being asked and by the end of the decade Paramount was still said to be interested in making the Brazilian job um, I think the last I heard of it was around 2015 when Mark Wahlberg said it may still happen but it's no spoiler to suggest it didn't actually happen in the end and at the point this has been recorded if there's any continuation of the Italian job story it's likely to be on TV rather than a continuation of the cinematic saga uh, Fast and Furious franchise this is not However, what's remarkable, I think, about the Italian job is that which either version you come to is you've got a really good original film and you've got a pretty good remake as well. That I know some people are a little bit snooty about the 2003 Italian job. I thought it was a good, entertaining film. And particularly for those who were very affectionate about the first film, if you can just like disassociate yourself from it a little bit, you're in for a good time with either. The 1969 original is clearly the daddy of them all. It's clearly the one to look up to 2003 one not too bad double bill of both you know what you could do worse and that brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for your time. Um, if I've not bored you completely, you can find more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find more from the entire Film Stories project on Twitter as well at Film Stories. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash film stories online, youtube.com slash film stories. And then there's our website. So filmstories.co.uk is updated every weekday with news, features, reviews, mayhem, all sorts that are going on there. Store.filmstories.co.uk, meanwhile, is 
is where you can find our print magazines for sale. We're just finishing issue 42 of Film Stories magazine. I'm really pleased with what we've got on the cover of it as well. We'll be telling more about that soon. You can find everything we've got for sale at store.filmstories.co.uk. And the Patreon is patreon.com slash simonbrew. But I think I'll leave you in peace now. I've waffled far too much, haven't I? The main thing, as always, though, is you all take care. You all look after yourselves. I will be back soon with another bunch of film stories. Until we meet again, take care. Bye-bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.